Hitting revenue targets is hard and requires constant hustle. Last quarter's success is already forgotten. Learn the mindset and tactics of today's most successful revenue producers in B2B marketing and sales. We call this the revenue hustle. I'm your host, Tom Hessen, navigating you on this journey. Today's show is sponsored by Nine Lenses, an interactive assessment platform that enables you to add instant value to your buyers and allows your sales team to tailor business conversations focused on the pain points each and every time. Check them out at NineLenses.com. Hi, this is Tom Hessen, the host of The Revenue Hustle, and it is my distinct pleasure to welcome our next guest, Anand Shashadri, to The Revenue Hustle. Anand, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Tom. Absolute pleasure to be here. Well, I am excited for our conversation today, and let me just start with a little uh, brief intro, then Anand, I'll let you introduce yourself. But um, currently, he's the CEO of Uniqual Partners. And that's a boutique management consulting firm that he founded um, to connect dots between strategy and execution. And we'll get a lot about into his background and how that shaped his revenue rules. Um, but prior to that, he was the senior vice president and head of strategic growth for a big consulting company called UST. And um, you know, he worked with big clients, and I'll let him talk to you know let, let him talk to you about a little bit of that. But um, and now, why don't you give a little uh, intro? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you so much, uh, Tom. So as you called out already, I am the founder and managing partner slash CEO of Uniqual Partners. I founded it mid last decade with the express purpose of uh, connecting the dots from strategy to activation effectively, right? A pain point that I found both in my days, you know, in the execution trenches and as a consultant, right? And beyond that, just from uh, way of background, if you will, Tom, you know, I grew up in technology with the likes of Infosys and Accenture that we share in common, yep. a variety of other tech companies in Canada and the U.S., right? I secured an MBA from Chicago Booth, and then I was with AT Kearney for five uh, tremendous exciting years. I left AT Kearney to go lead strategy for Anthem, now Elevance Healthcare, right? And then I followed that with similar stints with Coca-Cola North America and Scotiabank, and uh, most recently, I was at USD, a digital transformation services firm backed by Temasek, one of the world's largest sovereign PE funds, as you know, out of Singapore, right? Um, I wanted to call out, Tom, as you can tell from my background, it is a fairly non-traditional entry path to growth, right? It's not a, you know, grew up in pure play sales or right. marketing, right? So when I hear the word growth, I instinctively equate it with, Growth and valuation, which to me, right, includes the traditional top line growth sales, of course, but also EBITDA expansion. Mm-hmm. And a focus of mine with all the companies I work with, all my clients, is to strategically shift their portfolios toward higher valuation, right, assets and services, if you will. Right. And finally, just wanted to say, uh, you know, I've been a practitioner across consulting and professional services. I've been a buyer of services, I've been a seller of services, and I've been an entrepreneur in that space. And I hope to be able to bring some of those perspectives to our conversation here. Thank you. Fantastic. No, and that's what makes me so excited about our conversation today. So, Anand, you know how we do this on the Revenue Hustle. We have revenue rules. So why don't you go ahead and give us your first revenue rule? All right. Revenue rule number one, your people should know why they're doing and all they're doing at all times. Tell me more about that. 
So uh, net net Tom, obviously I'm talking about creating purpose and meaning-led organizations, right? You know, sales and growth organizations today are often horizontals, right? Sometimes you see the federated model, but uh, they're built with the express purpose of supporting, uh, you know, multiple lines of businesses, if you will. I think it's incumbent upon the leaders of these organizations to clearly define the why, right, for their people, right, which I think is what leads to great wins and such. And, and so to elaborate on that a little bit, right, you know, when you talk to people and say, what is your purpose? Why are you doing what you're doing? Yeah. People often come back with, you know, with the vision statement, right, which is, which is great. The vision statement is my purpose. It's my North Star. And, uh, you know, right, the, but the challenge being, right, it is a North Star, but remember the North Star is something like 320 odd light years away. Right, okay. sure. Right? So I know where to head. I know the general direction to go toward, right? I just, you know, I, it doesn't help me making decisions on how to navigate this particular forest or this avalanche that's in my way and not just hurdles right. but decisions as well, right? Right. That, that's the that's first point from a guidance perspective. Vision statements are fantastic, but not enough to provide day-to-day day-to-day guidance, right? Um, I think a second, right, a factor that I always think about is motivation. And in my experience, and a lot of research supports this, right, extrinsic rewards, incentive systems, right, money goes only so far in motivating people. But when I think about, you know, great deals, the great wins that I've witnessed, that I've been a part of, that I've led, they're always characterized by a few elements, right? One is, just this completely unfettered part leadership, right? The second is, uh, you know, this um, absolute entrepreneurial spirit that people bring to right. that to that RFP at hand or what have you. And the third is a lot of heroic efforts that go into these things, right? And to get there, right, my belief is that you need to define meaning for your people. You need to define purpose very effectively. Yeah, and, and how did you, did you see, I guess, maybe, clients that have done this well, or maybe even the firms that you've worked in that, and, and maybe others that have not done it so well, where you saw it as a gap or a pain point where people didn't know how to connect what they were doing to a, a broader why uh, for the, for the, you know, for the, for the company. Absolutely, Tom. And, you know, my experience sort of stretches across the Fortune 100, right, conglomerate variety of companies, but also, right, really small startups to mid-sized, right, private equity portfolio companies. And across all these, right, what I've seen is, you know, people try really hard to get to good incentive design. And of course, that needs to change because companies are pivoting and repivoting. Strategies are constantly changing. But, right, but what happens is, right, companies like that that stop at that point, you see them, right, performing okay, perhaps, right, if, if at all. But then the companies that have a, you know, broader vision set, right, are actually able to go, right, uh, you know, uh, a thousand miles beyond, the above and beyond, if you will. And uh, more, more, I think, you know, beyond the point about great wins, Tom, right, when I think back to, you know, my entire life, really, right, uh, I think uh, meaning is an essential pursuit for all of us, for all of our lives, whether in our personal relationships or in uh, at work, right? When right huge amounts of our time. And so, you know, the pursuit of happiness is fantastic. It's it's, it's so well written, our, our declaration, 
But, but I tell you, right, you can't perceive happiness because it's an outcome, right? And my, right, some total of my experience suggests that it's actually meaning that we should be seeking. Yeah, no. And, and, and so how have you seen that manifest itself into like, if they do it well, what have been the outcomes, right? Or, or, or you know, you're, I think you're saying it, it's important because it leads to growth, right? So can you connect on like why that's important and how that translates into growth? Absolutely. So, uh, so Tom, I think, right, a lot of uh, growth, especially in the space that we are concerned with, with consulting and professional services, come about through competitive endeavors, through RFPs, right? And some through unsolicited bids as well. But when you're in the midst of that, right, RFP, right, you're faced with tight timelines, you're faced with, you know, aggressive, right, turnaround times and such, right? What, what I found is, right, when people are focused on incentives, they say, you know, I've done this and I've fulfilled the if-then, if-then of the incentive and I've achieved my goal, right? But when I see people who are driven by meaning and motivation, right, I want to, you know, transform the lives of my customer and in turn transform the lives of people in those communities and such, right? That's when you see people going in above and beyond, right? Pulling the right. all right? Connecting the dots across completely disparate events and so on and so forth. And I mean, I don't have to make this declaration. All it'll take is a simple public domain search, right? Pur Purpose-led companies outperforming companies right. not, right? So to say. And and so, it's good business, right? It's it's good financial metrics, right? Is what you're saying? Like this makes good financial sense, um, even though it may sound touchy feely to some. You're saying you know it's connected to real business outcomes, right? When people. Absolutely. Right, hundred percent, Tom. Right, and 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 I'm I'm saying, right, you can get to right maybe middle of the road outcomes, maybe even better with incentive schemes, but when you have meaning and purpose at play, that's when you see greatness. That's when you see companies right. working together, growing together meaningfully over a you know long periods of time, if you will. Right. Right, and and you know I think that all makes sense to me. Right, it's like. But it's really hard to capture that in a, and you know, some firms, you know, companies do that incredibly well, and others just kind of, like you said, try to find their way through, and it, it, it's, it's messy, right? Like, it's not. It seems again, I, I haven't worked in a lot of Fortune 100s. You know, the bigger the companies, the harder it is to get people rallied around a common purpose with meaning like that. Like, how have you seen companies actually go about? doing that right or doing it well or maybe even examples of of companies trying but falling short yeah 100 percent, tom so in my experience right the first step is forming that meaningful vision statement right that's actually the north star for the company that actually defines right the why of my broad existence at work if you right, right? right. I think that's an absolute important first step and i've been with companies where it was not so well defined and we said, let's go back to the whiteboard. Let's go define this properly, right? But by definition, that that vision statement, the why, needs to be broad and aspirational and separate from the strategies to enable it, right? right. Now, when we start to you know create strategies to enable to bring that vision to life, right? What we find is that companies are again, as I said, pivoting and repivoting 
on an everyday basis, every month, every quarter basis, right? So uh, you're absolutely right. It, it becomes really hard. What I've seen successful sales and growth leaders do is, is constant communication, right? Constant dialogue with, with the lines of businesses and not just the leaders of the lines of businesses, but also the people that are managing these sub-businesses, if you will, right? Um, right. As well as, right, the, the all these supporting functions from operations to procurement to et cetera, right? And right. through that, right, it is it is a hard thing to do. It is very difficult to get to the right level of, right level of the why, because you don't want to define the why such that it changes in a month or a quarter. You want it to last a year, right? So you have to find that level, right? So by no means is it easy. I'm just saying it's absolutely worth it. Yeah. We should strive to do that. Yes. Now, what companies do you see that you think do this well? Do you have any uh, that come to mind? Great, great question, right? If I had to quote some off the top, you know, I'd say Coca-Cola, right, is one example. Uh, Johnson & Johnson is another example. And these are companies in 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 my, right, um, you know, uh, sphere, of, uh, sphere of vision, if you will, Obviously, I'm not capturing every one of them. Yeah. But uh, the companies that can, right, uh, truly set that vision and follow it consistently, you know, for decades, right, for centuries even, uh, I see them as the as a top, right, uh, runners in this field. Um, also, right, several startups and 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 you know, private equity portfolio companies that I've come across have been able to do this consistently. Right. The challenge, I think, is. It's, it's somewhat iterative. What are my capabilities? What are the strategies I want to pursue? What are the results I want to achieve? And therefore, what should my vision be? And then, and then you iterate back to say, you know, what is my vision? Is it set apart enough from the very specifics of my company? And can it guide, guide the company going forward? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it also becomes helpful. I mean, once you have that clarity, right, it just aligns everyone to your point, right? Because I think everyone is 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 working together. They're maybe going the extra mile that they may not have just, it's not just for myself, it's for the, you know, the greater good of my, my colleagues, my, um, or the planet or the, uh, our investors, right? Like, I think it also starts with a real, passion for the customer whether that be a commercial like a like a nike that has you know a very strong desire to help athletes in some capacity right um or you know even you think tesla or spacex like trying to get to mars and you know like they have very big lofty um goals and aspirations that people can line up and get behind even though it's incredibly hard right to maybe achieve those, but it, it be, brings clarity to should I, or should I not even want to work there? Yeah. Right. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Absolutely. Well put, uh, Tom agree with uh, all of what you just said. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting, right? Because again, we, we, we devoted back to vision. We're talking about vision and that is the starting point, right? When I was thinking when it comes to sales and growth organizations and defining that, Right, the middle level why, if you will, right, the, the greatest successes I have found are companies that have well-defined organizational structure mm. and well-defined roles and responsibilities. So the lanes are clear, people know what, what they are supposed to be doing, right? And then the whys of the lines of businesses and the businesses, right, are well formed. And, and then, right, uh, you know, by extension, those of the of the sales and uh, growth organizations. 
Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's, that's really clear. And I think the, um, I mean, cause everybody wants to feel valued and that their work is contributing to the, um, the outcomes of, you know, or, or helping achieve the outcomes that the company has set forth or achieving that vision. And so the ability to tie back your personal value to the value of the company or to your customer, I think, again, is kind of like, it can't just be so far away that I don't know what I'm like, what I'm doing. I don't know how that connects. Right. And that's, I, I suspect easy for a lot of companies to to mess up. Right. Cause it's hard to translate that big lofty goal to, you know, some mundane set of tasks that I may be responsible for. Right. To, to, to see that. But um, that's, I think the challenge of leadership, right. To help connect that. hundred percent to Tom. And a couple of, uh, references, publications that I want to reference, right? One's a book called Drive the Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. It's by Juan Pink that many will know from NPR, right? And and I found it extremely insightful in, in terms of differentiating between the extrinsic and the intrinsic, right? And, and this book talks about, right, extrinsic rewards are well suited for algorithmic tasks, right? For repeat tasks and so on and so forth. But as soon as you have work that involves a level of creativity, that involves, you know, strategic thinking and such, right, they fall short. And, you know, Dan actually, Dan Pink actually talks about three factors that go into, right, um, great work environments and great work outcomes. And, and those are um, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Right? So that's one I wanted to reference. Another one was a, was an HBR publication that I came upon. Not more than two months ago, I want to say, um, it, it, it does, it talks about the cultural ethos of companies and how you can classify cultures. And I found that, you know, there are very few, very little, right, uh, thinking that's so structured. They talk about, right, two axes, independence versus interdependence and flexibility versus stability to kind of get to what are the cultural ethos, right? The, the cultural norms of the right. And again, right. Arriving at the same point, right? Meaning-led, purpose-led organizations consistently outperform those that are not. Awesome. Well, let's leave that there. I mean, I think those are two great resources, and and I'll mention those in the show notes. So if I if you can help me, just um, uh, share those with the with the community here. So um, great discussion. So let's transition to revenue rule number two. Why don't you go ahead and share that with us? Sounds good. Um, so revenue rule number two. Uh, focus on the inside out versus outside in, in your growth, sales, and pursuits beyond. Okay, so what's the difference between inside out and outside in? So let's talk about outside in. I think outside in is a better understood term. Tom, we've both been consultants. We've seen this often, right? But, you know, when we approach new clients, when we approach new logos, right, The you know, we, we sort of look in the public domain. We look at Right, where the industry is, we look at you know what the what who the key players are, how's the top quartile performing. We look at right best practices, you know macro indicators such as the stock price or valuation change or P by E ratio or what have you to form that outside in opinion, right? And that outside in is uh, really important. There is a place for it because it tells the company how to form their strategies, right? Right. But often what we forget is the strategy, the unique strategy for that company or organization is actually shaped 
as much or more so by its capabilities. It's the capabilities that restrict us, that constrain us, right? And I think the 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 essence of forming right good strategies is about saying, how can I take my capabilities, bend them, shape them, configure them in a way that can create differentiation for me in the marketplace, right? And I often think of uh, the Olympic high jumper Dick Fosbury back in the '60s. I think you know he said, "I'm I'm only six feet tall. I got a bad back and a bad knees." And, and I want to win the gold, how do I do this? And he invented the Fosbury flop, which is essentially right, going over your right. back. He raised his center of gravity, right? And you know the, <laughs> the reason I, I sort of illustrate that is I'm saying strategy is you know, as much, if not more about capabilities, about the unique you know, pain points, the unique challenges, the, the finitude that companies and organizations face. Right. And so, you know, from a sales and growth perspective, I often see organizations, companies approaching right sales and growth with an outside in mindset. Right. And what I've seen is the companies that succeed are those that quickly, right, change that to incorporate a lot more of the inside out. If you will. Yes. And, and so, I mean, you bring up a good point because in sales, it's easy. I mean, we're always outside in, right? We're bringing our products and services out to the marketplace, right? And we're taking a point of view and best practices and all these things out to the marketplace, right? And then we meet a customer that we're now running head on with into their goals, their desires, their capabilities, right? And we're trying to, I mean, I guess the best salespeople are taking our outside view and trying to align it to what it is they're doing. Right. Because I think one thing I've learned in sales over the years is that I'm never going to get a customer to do something that they ultimately don't want to do. Right. It's just, it's just, you can't convince someone to do something that they ultimately don't want to do. Right. So it kind of speaks to the value and the importance of your inside out in, in sales. Exactly right, Tom. And to the point that you make, right, I've seen, you know, so many leaders that are frustrated because their provider organizations just refuse to right look under the hood right see the specific challenges that they are they are facing right understand their frustrations if you will and I've been in that position as well as a buyer and uh, you know you know this this term right trusted part partner is such a bandied about term but I don't think people get that what that means is when when that when that company is forming their strategy. They want to actually call upon me as the provider because I have the external perspective. I know what's happening in the marketplace. I know what the competitors are doing. And they want to marry that to their own right finitude, if you will, to their capabilities. And, you know, I think people who, who, who bring that understanding and empathy, right? And, and the, and, and, and an absolute, right? Clear, right? Sort of view of how important it is, right? To start with the capabilities. Right, are able to truly be thought partners, right? So in that sense, right, this is important because it's not just about winning the deal, right? It's about long-term sustainability. It's about right. companies being able to grow together meaningfully, and so on and so forth. Yeah, and and it, it it's an interesting dynamic because you're right. There there are always these things at play because again, they're they're you know a company is looking to an outsider software company service provider because they do things that this you know the company itself can't do right 
Um, you know, because I think every company would prefer to do it themselves if they had that capability. Um, but often, you know, you can't have capabilities and everything. You, it's easier to buy from an expert, right? Buy existing software. You, you're not, you're going to go buy Salesforce as your CRM. You're not going to try to build your own CRM. Um, you know, 99 times out of a hundred, right? If not 99, 999 out of a thousand, right? Just because that's not your core competency, but it's, it's, it's then being able to tailor that application to meet the needs of your own business, which looks very different oftentimes in big companies of how they implement a software system or, or a service project or something like that. So it's, it is this kind of unique balance, but I think oftentimes transactional sellers think mostly just about, here's my stuff, here's my point of view, it'll solve these problems for you, but really fail to understand the intricacies of the inside out strategy, which is ultimately what executives like you and others have, um, you know, staked their careers on. Yeah, 100% Tom, cannot emphasize the need for bespoke solutions, right? People think because, because we moved away from you know, with technology, for instance, right? We moved away from, right, in-place development, on-premises, we moved to the cloud, we've got SaaS, and so on. Well, that, that does away with the need for bespoke, right? Bespoke, but, you know, whether you bring about bespoke through customization or through scripts or actually, like, changing the annals of the code, doesn't matter. Bespoke right. is important. As you said, it's not a code competency for that company, but it needs to fold and integrate really well into that company's business and in, in, into their strategies as well, right? So I think that's, that's sort of the criticality of adopting that, that mindset. And do you have an example of where you've done this well as an outsider selling into, and then maybe as a buyer, um, you know, as an executive buyer, where you've seen that either work well or not work well, um, where that's left you, you know, frustrated or, or, you know, maybe, you know, because I hear this all the time, like people are shocked to hear that they didn't win a deal or didn't sell the, you know, and, um, you know, maybe they didn't understand the customer's need correctly, right? Like, so there's a number of different reasons why, but I'm kind of curious, like if, if you've seen, you know, you've either done this well or have seen it as the buyer done well or not well. Yeah. So I've, I've seen this, right, as, you know, while witnessing, right, great friends, I've seen this while being a part of while leading. And, uh, you know, uh, one example that comes to mind, right, fairly recent, and I won't go to the specifics, but, you know, the company I was with, we were the seller, right? We were in an, in an RFP uh, with this, with this, uh, let's say, conglomerate, right, without naming the, the vertical of the space. And, uh, you know, what happened was they already had, right, a set of four suppliers that were incumbents Right, that were well favored. It was it was the company's norm not to bring in outside suppliers un, unless right they couldn't help it, so to say. So right. we were the fifth supplier. We were the outside supplier, and I think a lot of the the reason right strategically was to introduce another player, right, introduce more competition, right, whether price competition or for quality, uh, you know, etc. And uh, interestingly, right, this company about a year ago before the RFP audit had talked about divesting off of certain assets, certain divisions. But that was the, the broad backdrop. And then when we got into this RFP, it was, it was six months long. It was really hard fought, right? We came in from behind to win it. 
But I think one of the one of the reasons that we were able to do it was because we we thought about right that backdrop, right, the divestiture, if you will. And then we looked at the RFP and what is happening within that context really carefully. What's the timeline look like? You know, the transition plan is set in a certain way, right? Uh, this thing got extended out, but right, there is this one, two, three nuances that that we could see. So even you know, with no knowledge whatsoever, right, we were able to intuit that that there is an acquisition, there is a divestiture on the way, if you will. Right. And it was extremely hard to do. It was sort of triangulating between what you know in the public domain, what you're hitting on the RFP, what you're getting through your network of contacts, right? What you're hearing from supporting organizations, you know, and, and ad infinite, right? right. So that, and then there was also this, right? Bringing your experience and knowledge and intuition into play, right? To kind of, kind of be able to understand Right, what's what's going on there, and kind of come to the conclusion that, well, there is an acquisition right in progress. And sure enough, we signed the deal. You know, month X, and the very next month, right, the the divestiture was announced. And I think uh, a big part of why we were able to win it was because of all the competitors. I think we were the only ones who were able to intuit that. Mm -hmm. You know, I heard this after, right, feedback after, and we were able to. Uh, pretty much design everything we did toward that goal, right? To create the right, you know, the right settings, if you will, for a carve out uh, to come in, in many ways, right? And I think that helped us win the day in, in many ways. Well, it, it's so easy for us as humans to be self-centered, right? To be, um, look at what I can do, look what my firm can do. Um, we're experts in this space. We've been around. Here's our clientele. Me, 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 me. Right. Yeah. And again, even the even good big firms again still try to, you know, here's what we've done with this client and that client. We've won this one and that one. And again, like RFPs are hard because you do have limited information, right? By design, right? You are arm's length away, uh, which makes them very challenging for for all involved. But I mean, I think that's a great example of being able to really take an opinion or a point of view, I guess is the right that you took a point of view around divestiture as, as a core thing that they were looking to do and say, we're going to base our response around that, right? Thinking that that is what they are ultimately doing, reading the tea leaves, right? As, as, as they say, um, and, and you are spot on. So I think it's, it's always, it's, hard i think naturally for a lot of us to be like nobody cares about us as a as a provider as a software company they care about them our customers care about themselves so all they want to know about is themselves right and and so the better that we can orient our talk tracks our our value props to them like you said it it really does stand out it's it's it sounds so easy right just like your first revenue rule sounds so easy but we know in practice it's much different yeah, I was going to emphasize that again, Tom. Just like Revenue Rule 1, this one is extremely hard to do. Right? Triangulation, intuition, this this requires a lot of, you know, stretch thinking, if you will, a lot of lateral thinking and so on and so forth. But it's well worth it, right? And in this particular case, it's not just about a great win. It's about, you know, this, this tremendous partnership going forward. And yeah. you know, that entry point can obviously bring growth in many other directions, right? Which, which reminds me, 
right? I've seen a lot of organizations that might be working in, you know, one specific area for this, for this client or what have you. And they're going to talk to another area, right? And, and often, again, right? A lot of times they'll lead with the outside in viewpoint, very little of the inside out. And I'm constantly challenging teams say, you already know what this business looks like, right? Surely you have some idea of what's happening in the adjoining business, right? You, you have, you know, you have relationships within this company. You can ask for introductions, right? So going into that conversation, right? That much prepared from an inside out perspective is going to help us win today. And, and time and again, this has, this has proven true, right? Which is why I keep saying it's difficult, but guys, it's, it's worth it. You, you, we should do it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've given us two great revenue rules um, to think about and um, probably some of the harder ones to implement because it's not just one person. It's not just, hey, I'm going to change the way I sell or think or act. Um, these are organizational, um, cultural even sometimes. Um, and, and obviously changing any organization is not an easy thing, right? And, and no one person, it's it's a collective group. And so, um, no, these these have been great. We have certainly not talked about anything like this on the, on the revenue hustle. So that's always good to, to cover new ground. Um, so Ananda, tell us a little bit about your career. How did you get into kind of consulting and these digital transformation uh, initiatives and, and roles? Yeah, thank, thank you, Tom. So as I mentioned, Tom, I started in the mid-90s. Uh, I started in technology, right? Um, I had two engineering degrees uh, coming out of university. I studied, uh, you know, in, in parallel in mechanical engineering and computer science. And and I was in India at the time, right? This was the this was an absolutely exciting time for the country, right? Ninety two, the markets had opened up, right? The IT, you know, revolution. I, I don't think revolution is is, uh, is is too much of a statement. Had started. Right? The economy was turning around and truly exciting place was to be in software. So I did that. I started with Infosys. At that time, uh, a late stage startup. I think I was not employee 2000 yet. And I think they are now at 200,000 plus or some such number. Right. Um, I did that for about a year. My, my client was, uh, Reebok International. Oh, cool. Europe, right. We were helping them with their distribution and, and warehousing, right, functions. And then at the end of the year, I, I felt the need to be able to talk to the client, to witness the business and so on and so forth. And I was fortunate enough to find myself a job in Canada and, uh, and, and move right bag and baggage, right? Big suitcase, proverbial immigrant at 23. Um, I couldn't move to the U.S. because you need two years uh, of work experience to apply for a visa even. So that was, that was sort of the start of my career there. I then continued to work with a variety of technology companies, more so in the in the telco space, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, I was already starting to build out, right, grow businesses. Um, I was able to establish a data management practice for this company out of Canada. It was going from, you know, 10, 10 people in Edmonton, Canada to about 40 in seven international locations. And I, I started to feel, you know, I was hitting the ceiling in terms of my knowledge and capabilities, if you will. And, uh, you know, Booth was almost fortuitous, uh, so, mm. you know, I applied, you know, they made number one that year. I joined them before they could change their minds uh, in 2007, right? And then, uh, and then, right, AT Connie was, you know, of course, uh, my, my next stop, which was fantastic. This was sort of my first real, right, experience. I brought a lot of capabilities 
right, uh, uh, to the table, right, which is why I think I ended up being fast-tracked, right, more so than smarts or other things, I think. But that was fantastic, right? Five great years when I had the opportunity to work across a variety of verticals. And I, I started yeah. in healthcare and healthcare and and, uh, and retail, consumer retail. And then right, I formed my company because I felt the need, I felt this, right? I felt that there was a white space uh, in this, you know, the connecting strategy to execution. And since then, the world has moved in that direction, right? A lot of the bigger consulting firms are moving downstream, right? Implementation firms are moving upstream, right? So on and so forth, right? Um, and then there was USD, which brings us to, to today, right? And that is sort of my journey. I think, uh, you know, more so than growth, I want to say value creation was a consistent threat across sure. that, that I pursued, right? More so than what are the specifics of what I was working on, which is how I think I find myself here today. Awesome. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting too, because value creation obviously does lead to growth, right? Because when you create value for clients, it only comes back in in more dollars, right? Usually from them. Um, and it's a different perspective on growth. It's, it's you know, like you said, EBITDA, we really haven't talked about EBITDA growth. Um, and and obviously that starts with value, whether that's cutting costs or growing top line, right? It, it ultimately produces value at the bottom. Um, well, wonderful. So where can we follow you online? Um, so I can be reached a few different ways. You can find me on LinkedIn fairly easily to search for Anand Booth, perhaps, and Connie or something. Uh, my email ID is anand.sishasvi, first name, dot last name, at unicornpartners.com. Fantastic. Well, Anand, thank you for coming on to the Revenue Hustle. It's been an absolute joy uh, talking about these different revenue rules. Again, two uh, thought-provoking ones that I'm certainly going to go off and ponder for uh, for nine lenses. And uh, I'm sure my community here on the Revenue Hustle will do the same. So let's, uh, let's do it again soon. Thank you so much, Tom. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to the Revenue Hustle. This episode has been brought to you by Nine Lenses. Close more deals with interactive assessments. Check them out at ninelenses.com. See you next time.